This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by Amazon Web Services. On this episode, I chat with Erica Windish about observing serverless observability. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 58. I'm Jeremy Daly, and this is Serverless Chats. Today, I'm joined by Erica Windish. Hey, Erica, thanks for joining me. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. So, or, thank you for having me. <laughs> so, so you are a principal engineer and architect at New Relic, and you're also an AWS Serverless hero. So I'd love it if you could tell the listeners a bit about your background and what you've been doing at New Relic. Oh, gosh. Uh, okay. Well my, well, my background's pretty deep. Um, so... I'm at New Relic now. Before New Relic, um, I was uh, the founder and CTO of IOPipe, which was um, an observability product for serverless applications. Um, now I'm working as an architect and principal engineer for New Relic. Um, and if we're going to rewind history a little bit, um, I previously was um, a security engineer working uh, at Docker. Um, where I founded their security uh, team and their security processes. Um, I was involved in OpenStack from the uh, from very early um, since its like founding. And then uh, before that, I had uh, actually had my first company, and we had built a cloud. Uh, we actually had our own cloud services. Uh, we were building uh, from like 2003, actually uh, building out like uh, horizontally scalable cloud services. And I said. Well, like, you know, we bought really early into that pets versus cattle uh, idea. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, so obviously you're doing a lot with uh, observability and you're doing that at New Relic. That's sort of what New Relic does. Um, IOPipe was all about that. You know, and I, I know a lot of the team has gone over to, uh, from IOPipe to New Relic to continue to work and expand their services. Uh, and, and I'd love to talk to you about that today. We've done a number of shows where we've talked about observability, um, but that was probably almost a year ago at this point. And I'd love to get a sense of sort of where things have gone, where things are going, um, you know, maybe what the future is going to look like. I, I got a bunch of other things I want to talk to you about, but maybe we could just start just in case listeners don't know, um, what do we mean by observability? Oh, gosh. Um, the way I see it is being able to really see uh, what is happening in your applications, in your infrastructure, and doing that, um, you know, I, I would argue, like, I would say, like, early monitoring, things like Nagios was, I would not consider observability. That was uh, monitoring. It was very much, you know, very reactive um, and mm -hmm. very, it, it, there was zero proactive, you know, there, it was not proactive at all using something like Nagios. Um, logging products give you some ability to start getting into um, being able to be proactive. And I think that observability kind of ties in some of the concepts from logging and, you know, and and ties it in with your metrics and ties in, you know, being highly correlated and also deeper into your application, having, you know, um, traces in your application, having context for your applications. Um, you know, for instance, you know, just having a trace and knowing that, um, say, an API gateway uh, triggered a Lambda is one piece of information that you can have, but, you know, knowing say, the resource path, the HTTP method, uh, things like that, you know, that's a deeper uh, set of insight that um, I think is necessary um, 
and definitely fits within a or, um, an observability picture that is very much, say, different and distinct from something like Nagios um, or uh, even just plain text logs. Right. Yeah. And we've talked about on the show the, the three pillars, right? You've got monitoring, tracing, and logging. Um, and so monitoring, like you said, is that sort of general, like, you know, just something goes wrong, maybe, you know, you get a, an alert, something like that. Um, the logging bit is obviously logging data. Um, but let's get more into tracing a little bit. What do we mean by by tracing? Sure. Um, the way I look at tracing is being able to see the relationship between uh, various components, and, and not just the components. And I, I think this is also where, you know, maybe tracing generally, like, you know, in our industry over, you know, uh, historically has been this service talks to this ser that service, uh, and, and that service talks to another service, et cetera. Uh, I think of it as this function, um, you know, talks you know, it, uh, you know, communicates to this other function. Um, and, and that is true even outside of serverless where functions are the primitive. Um, serverless was a really great place for us to start because it's already seg segmented into functions. But if you're mm -hmm. looking at a, you know, a microservice, there's no reason that you can't think about your code uh, about, say, this function or this component or this resource path um, is communicating to this other function, and also contextually. So for instance, um, you know, maybe this service only calls DynamoDB when it's inserting data, or you know, when the your API gateway, um, there's a put request, right? That, that triggers a put into DynamoDB. Um, you don't get a put into DynamoDB when uh, you do a delete uh, on the API gateway. So like that's the kind of context that I think is really interesting for things like tracing uh, that is a little bit more, I think, beyond what uh, traditional tracing solutions have been doing. Right, because I mean, it's it's a lot different in these distributed systems. I mean, even if you're just talking to one microservice, it's usually you talk to one microservice and maybe you want to see you know that that continuity there, or you know, service X called service Y. But now with with serverless specifically, we have you know function X calling service Y, which generates an event that then gets picked up by event bridge, and then another service picks it up, and so forth. Um, so we we can get into why it's important in serverless applications. But is there anything else? Um, you know, where observability is different in the sense of monitoring? I mean, you mentioned the the idea of being a little bit proactive. What, what do you mean by being more proactive? Um, well, by being proactive, I, I, I guess I'm referring to the fact that, you know, things like, like, again, you know, you know, rewinding history a little bit and going to something like, you know, very distinctly not observability, like Nagios, and saying, yeah. you know, this is very reactive. Something went down, and now we, you know, we, we then asked it if it's up and it said it's, and we couldn't reach it. So then we determined that it's down. Um, I think that like, you know, kind of step two of that kind of journey towards observability would say, okay, well, we have logs, we have a logging product and the logs told me that when, I don't know, um, this service tried writing to the syslog server, it got an error. Well, when I get that error, I know that at least this system cannot talk to the syslog server. In fact, maybe mm -hmm. I know that 100 systems cannot talk to the syslog server. And 
I, I think two things come out of this. One is that it eliminates the um, kind of the, 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 the maybe the falsehood of a binary uh, status for uptime, right? Because maybe that syslog server is up right. from the perspective of, say, Nagios or from the perspective of, you know, machines on its segment uh, or, or on its subnet. But maybe there's machines in another AZ or another subnet, and those are the machines that cannot talk to it. And that's contextual, you know, information that is really critically important. Um, I guess you can argue that it is still somewhat reactive because you're still basing it off of, say, something like logs. But mm -hmm. um, you're, you're not polling for that kind of information directly necessarily in order to have basic fundamental understanding of things that your applications should already be knowing about themselves. Yeah. And Sheen Brizzles wrote uh, an article the other day that I thought was really interesting where, um, you know, with all the observability in place on the serverless applications that they have at Lego, um, he they basically said, like, the system reports when everything's healthy or it, it like the, the alerts are, hey, everything's working, right? Like, I mean, you can see that everything is going through that pathway. I think that's really interesting, too, because it's not only about maybe this service not being available. It's very much so about this service not being available if you try to put data this way, right? So you can see that with tracing and you get a much better understanding of, well, yeah, the system's not down. Like if I was just getting alerts saying system's fine, system's fine, but then you're seeing a consistent pattern of, of you know, certain messages failing, then it's really great to have that tracing and that, um, you know, the ability to go in and then dive dive into it and say, oh, okay, when it's, when it's shaped this way or when it comes from this component, then, then there's the error. Yeah, exactly. I think that being able to know when and where um, is a vital component. Like Nagios, for instance, would tell you what, <laughs> uh, but it wouldn't tell you, and it would tell you when, but it wouldn't, wouldn't tell you really where necessarily, right? Like mm -hmm. where, which applications are having problems communicating. And, and I think context is really the important key for me here. And being able to facet that data and tell you exactly um, where it's happening and for who tells you a lot about why it's happening. Because, right. you know, going back to the subnet example, um, you know, if you can easily, like, look in your observability tool and see that all of the services that are in this subnet are having a problem communicating, you start to really flesh out the why of a problem much more quickly uh, than if you just know that, um, you know, that service cannot be communicated to and you don't have any of the other additional contacts. Right, right. Yeah, no context, I think, is super important. All right, so why is observability so much, or I don't want to say so much more, but extremely important in serverless? Um, well, I think one of the things about serverless um, is the fact that it is broken up, you know, by default into these many pieces, right? So, you know, you by default, you have much more sprawl, you have many more services um, from a perspective of, you know, instead of a monolith, which contains many functions or many endpoints or resource paths or whatever, um, you get many, potentially many functions that serve that application. Um, and I think that kind of two things come out of this. One is the capability um, and to, to pinpoint things more accurately because, you know, that context is kind of baked into serverless because when you know there's a problem with that function and that function has a very narrow scope, Right, that gives you really strong context into what is happening versus it's this application, right? Because knowing it's a function 
um, you have that built-in context. So I think that serverless actually enables you uh, more so than the fact that it just needs it. Um, and yeah, so I, th I think that's like for me the biggest thing. Um, in, in terms of other reasons why maybe it's important for serverless is just because there are maybe uh, a lack of other traditional tools. Uh, so like you wouldn't run, you know, maybe some of the more traditional tools in a traditional way with a serverless application. So you're not necessarily getting that broad, you know, um, picture that isn't clearly defined. So, right. you know, in some ways where serverless kind of forces you into this, you know, deeper contextual awareness of your application, it also kind of requires, you know, deeper contextual, you know, observability for those applications. Um, you know, they kind of go hand in hand. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, and I actually find with a lot of the the tools we use in serverless, like whether it's SQS or EventBridge or, um, you know, some of these other ones where you don't really see what happens. It's very black box for some of these transport uh, mechanisms that are in there. So being able to connect that stuff together, you can't go and look at your RabbitMQ logs, for example, and see you know what happened if messages got lost or if they didn't get delivered or something like that. Whereas um, you know you put it into S you know SQS, th that's just not available to you, right? You have to see whether or not it actually happened. Um, and without recording that and being able to trace that all the way through, there's there's obviously a lot of um, a lot of data that's missing there if you don't have the right observability tool in place. So what about the the, the challenges that uh, the developers see when they're trying to, you know, monitor these applications and troubleshoot those applications? Sure. Um, I, I do think that, I, I think you had a really good point with the SQS. Um, I think this also exists for services like Kinesis. Um, mm. You don't have traditional logging for these services necessarily. Uh, sometimes they can act like a black box. So knowing the context for which your application is, you know, consuming from that application, uh, from those services, um, what kind of messages you're getting, the rate, uh, how it's partitioned, a lot of that information is contextual provided to the Lambda. Uh, so I think that um, observability of the Lambda itself, for instance, can give you some insight into those services that you don't otherwise get. Um, I think another challenge is, again, uh, relating back to the sprawl. Um, you know, there's many different, there could be many components of a serverless application. And I think that, you know, first of all, these are distributed applications. And not everybody's right. familiar with and comfortable with, you know, shipping and observing and, you know, operating a, a distributed application in the way they are with, you know, maybe monolithic, non-scalable applications. Um, and, you know, I think that a lot of users do really need tools to help them bridge that, you know, experience gap as well. Um, and also just, you know, even with the experience, um, you know, it can be a really valuable tool to, to help you visualize what is happening in your application. Right. Now, what about the fact that it's so ephemeral? I mean, we see containers being very ephemeral now as well. Um, but is the fact that these, you know, that functions disappear after a few seconds, is that is that creating problems? Um, I, I think it's a different way of, of, of writing applications. Uh, I think something that happened, especially, well, something I saw a lot early on when I was at IO, when we were doing IOPipe uh, was that users wouldn't necessarily always account appropriately for how the Lambda environment worked. 
So they would, you know, mm-hmm. ex- assume that things could la- be long living where they couldn't. Um, certain libraries, uh, which made that model very difficult. Um, some of the database libraries in particular were uh, a really frustrating challenge for a lot of users. Uh, AWS has made some uh, progress on building proxies and data APIs and things like that to kind of bridge that gap because some of those libraries are kind of fundamentally, uh, in- maybe not incompatible, but um, less compatible with the serverless, Mm. uh, with the AWS Lambda model, at least. Yeah. So when you say incompatible, though, like I I think you had mentioned to me before that there um, was like a W3C standard that is sort of standard now, but not necessarily standard in X-Ray. Yeah. So this is, uh, well, so this, there's a W3 standard for W3, well, trace context, the W3C trace context. and uh, New Relic was actually involved in uh, creating that. We had some engineers, I think Justin Foote and Erica Arnold uh, in particular were involved in that and maybe some others. Um, and with the with that, the idea is that HTTP, like it, it defines it for HTTP headers in particular. Um, although the actual like encapsulated data could theoretically be, you know, put over other protocols. Um, but it, it does dub over HTTP. W3C, I'm sure, right? <laughs> um, but th- the idea is that this is a standard set of headers that can be passed along vendor agnostic throughout services. So uh, if you're if all of your applications support W3C trace context, um, even if they're using different libraries by different vendors, as long as they all support W3C trace context, you can actually have complete traces through all these applications. Now, the AWS services do not currently, as of the time I'm speaking, uh, <laughs> support uh, this, this trace context. Um, they do support X-ray uh, headers, so they, they can pass those along. All right. So what about the advancements that's, that have been made over the last year or so? Because, again, you know, a year ago, it was pretty cool, right? There was a lot of great tracing software. There's been more vendors jumping into the space. Um, so has there been some maturity, you think, with these tools over the last year? I, I think so. I think one of the, the big things we had out of uh, New Relic is the recent launch of uh, Infinite Tracing on New Relic Edge. Um, I was actually mm-hmm. involved uh, in uh, creating the uh, Edge element of this, which is uh, p- primarily in the first cut, a, a provisioning uh you know, solution for um, various services that New Relic will provide on the edge. Uh, the first application for that is infinite tracing. Uh, and infinite tracing allows you to throw millions and millions of spans um, at a service that lives on the edge. So it lives, say, if you're in AWS, it lives in your AWS region. It receives uh, those traces uh, at high data rates, right? So we can ingest at, you know, tens of gigabits uh, per second. Uh, you know, per trace observer. Um, and then once we consume those, we can then apply machine learning and other, uh, you know, filtering mechanisms to help you sample appropriately. So rather than like traditionally with tracing, what would happen is your agent, um, whether it's um, open tracing or it's a new relic agent or one of our competitors' agents. Um, it has to make sampling decisions, you know, in a vacuum, right? Uh, in mm-hmm. a very stateless, in a, in a fairly stateless way. Um, what we're doing here instead is we're receiving all the traces, but then, but then batching them together and able to filter them out um, on the back end. 
right? So that we're only storing so many, but then we're actually able to, you know, do backend filtering uh, of larger batches. So there's much more context as to which traces are important and which ones we should keep and which ones, you know, are unimportant and we should throw away. So the, I think that's a really big uh, change in how tracing works uh, at New Relic uh, and, you know, I, for the industry, uh, potentially. Um, and something that we're also doing uh, is we're releasing, um, I, I don't know the final product name because uh, we're doing this call like a little bit advance of the launch, uh, but it will be um, an x-ray integration where we're able to mm. ingest x-ray traces uh, and correlate that with the data that we have in New Relic. So when you have a Lambda, you'll be able to see not just all the traces that are within that application and the traces out um, and you know context for that trace, but also be able to see the AWS services and see through those services. So uh, for instance, if you're triggered by an API gateway, now you're gonna have context for those traces in the same way you would get from X-Ray, but you have that now pulled into New Relic. So in those places where we don't have like deep observability because there are components that we cannot instrument because they're third-party mm. services or because uh, these are you know third-party tracing products like X-Ray, we can actually pull those in and tell you a more complete story. That's awesome. Yeah. So the let me ask you some questions about like somehow how some of that third party stuff works or like the X-ray stuff, because, again, I know AWS has added some capabilities where they pass, you know, like trace headers through SQS and things like that. Um, but that's not available on all their products, obviously. And, and I think, you know, probably I think of it this way because I mostly build web applications. I'm mostly thinking about HTTP. Right. But there's a lot of uh, other things that are happening. So where where are we with that kind of stuff? With sort of the non-HTTP, you know, messages being passed around. I think it's interesting because it's something I've been thinking a lot about recently. Um, you know, in particular because AWS does have that for SQS um, and I think SNS. Um, you know, and that's not a place where I think a lot of vendors are necessarily looking for trace headers. Um, mm -hmm. It's a place where W3C does not define standards for how to pass along data in these non-HTTP ways. Um, but I do think that W3C trace context, um, like trace parent headers, the values of those headers could be passed along, you know, in places that are not HTTP. Um, and I think it's going to be really compelling once all of these different services are able to support these. Uh, when we actually look at what does it what does it mean to have, um, for instance, do we get to a future when you write data into DynamoDB uh, that you can actually pass along a trace header and then the trigger that you know comes out of that, right? For the, like the Lambda trigger off the DynamoDB stream can actually have context for the, some of those traces. Right. Like, I, I don't know. Um, it'd be really interesting to see that feature. Um, I think we're just kind of at the beginning of that a little bit. Right. Yeah. Cause I mean, if you're doing, if you're doing something with DynamoDB now and you want to read off the streams or, uh, even I think Kinesis, right. You still need to pass in your own correlation IDs, um, in order to, in order to trace those back. Right. Uh, yes. And you know, there's lots of questions about how that would work. I think in the case of Kinesis, which I know a little bit better than Dynamo, to be honest, um, you know, you have individual records. So I think that in this case, it would be a, trace for where that record came from not necessarily because like you don't want the for the batch right because if you have it for the batch it, it, it's right. not really very useful you want to have it 
uh, down to the individual um, record. Uh, but yeah, you, you, you're right. You can kind of encapsulate that in yourself right now, but none of that is kind of um, built in by the thought. And and there's no way that like a new relic could just say, you know, modify people's kinesis records because, you know, that's arbitrary base 64 data. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. No, I mean, that's that's what I'm that's what I'm thinking. It's like it'd be really great to have that extra stuff. Now, does X-ray does X-ray have any of that data that you're you're able to import now? Oh, gosh. Um, right, because so, you can't trace DynamoDB all the way through with X-Ray. I don't think yeah, you can. Yeah, um, like, 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 so so the SQS example, I'm sorry, the, uh, yeah, the, the SQS example is something where we could potentially do that. Um, we're ingesting that X-Ray data, so if X-Ray has that data, um, it's passing along those values, and X-Ray collects it, then we can ingest it, and we can give you that context um, our agents are not directly getting that data, uh, which just means that it's going to be harder for us to correlate it. Um, mm -hmm. But honestly, until, you know, uh, say SQS and AWS have W3C trace context support, um, we're probably going to be a little bit of a gap period before, you know, we get like the kind of correlation that we want between our, uh, you know, native new relic traces, whatever that is, and native <laughs> X-ray traces because once you have W3C trace context, you know, you don't really have this concept of native necessarily anymore. Uh, there is something called a trace state, which is a vendor specific field. Um, and for the large part, um, we might ignore those. Uh, we might decide to support some of those. Um, but for the large part, you know, we're currently working with like the trace parent, which is the, um, you know, a, a highly vendor agnostic field. All right. Well, we, uh, you know, if AWS, if you're listening, let's get moving on that stuff because we uh, it would be nice to have. Um, yeah, that definitely gives so, my, my feedback. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So take off your uh, your new relic hat for a second, and I'd love to just get your insights um, just into the overall landscape that uh, um, you know where we are with serverless observability. So obviously, the 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 landscape, the, the number of vendors that are getting into this space, and we have. You know, IOPipe and now New Relic, um, Thundra, Datadog, Epsigon, Dashboard, um, Lumigo, Honeycomb, and then AWS recently launched their service lens. So we've just got all these different tools. Um, so my question is less about which is the best one to choose. Um, and it's more about this idea. I think they're all doing something slightly differently or slightly different. They're trying to, um, you know, to, to add a little bit of, uh, um, you know, I guess, um, that's the right word for it, you know, dis distinction between them. Um, but I guess it's a good thing, right? That we're getting all this competition. Like, what does that, what does that mean for, for serverless adoption? Does it mean anything for serverless adoption? Oh, gosh. Um, I, you know, I think that, you know, the success and failures of serverless observability over the last, you know, couple of years, um, you know, and the larger like social economic, like, you know, landscape or, or economic landscape rather, um, you know, especially around like COVID and everything else. Like, you know, we have a world right now where, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'm not really sure. Um, you know, like, I think that, um, you know, I definitely would have preferred that, you know, IOPipe, you know, could have stayed independent for longer to be quite, you know, 100% honest. Um, and, Gosh, um, 
you know, I, I think there is distinction between his products. One of the things that we determined at IO Pipe uh, towards the end was that, you know, we wanted to start going broader. Um, you know, we had gone very deep on serverless. We, we wanted to start going broader and, and not because, well, for a couple of reasons. One was because we found that, you know, almost nobody is running just serverless applications, right? They're running right. serverless applications as part of, you know, a bunch of applications that they're running, right? You know, they have business needs and those business needs are not entirely uh, serverless business needs. Um, you know, IOPipe was, you know, a company that, you know, we were running everything on serverless, but that was not the true, the case with, you know, the vast majority of our customers. So we wanted something mm -hmm. that was broader. Um, I think that New Relic was a really great way for us to look at saying, here's a way that we can go broader without having to, you know, become a full competitor to New Relic without having to build out everything for every service. Um because that's that's really important. You know, users need to have their whole application, you know, whole application observability. And you know, IOPipe was doing serverless observability. Um, I see some of the other competitors now also going a little bit wider, uh, a little right. bit broader with their missions. But I think it's challenging because, um, you know, there's a lot of pieces there to build, and you have to decide which ones you're going to build first. You're going to build out, you know, really fantastic tracing, or you're going to build out fantastic logs. Are you going to build out uh, fantastic monitoring, right? Like how much of these pieces are you individually building out? How are you connecting them? Because, you know, you, you want to make sure it's not just, you know, it's actual observability and it's not just a piece of it. And, and worse, like I think, so, I think that IOPipe, I think that IOPipe was observability. I believe it was. I believe it encompassed all of these things, but it did it very narrowly just for serverless. And that was right. an, that was an intentional thing that we did because, you know, we, we couldn't, like, we couldn't build the entire world, right? We, we couldn't, like, there's only so much we can do with so much money and so much time. So we, we, we focused very narrowly um, to try and do those, same, you know, those, a broad set of things now, you know, for a narrow market segment um, is easier than doing, you know, a broad set of features for a broad market segment. <laughs> um, right. But, that, right. but that's, you know, what we're doing now at New Relic, right, is going for the broader market segment of not just the serverless part. Yes, we're doing serverless, but it's not just serverless because realistically, um, you know, you have things that are not just serverless and it's very hard, I think, for um, really any vendor uh, to do all of the things and to do all of them right. Um, I, you know, I know you told me to take off the new Relic hat, but I thought this is a question that was really hard <laughs> to, uh, to, to take that hat off with. Um, because I, I do think that we're doing um, a lot of those pieces and we're doing a lot of those pieces right. Um, you know, I think that it's very possible. I think that, you know, companies like Honeycomb do really fantastically with, you know, doing their market segment very, very well and, you know, maybe better than we do at that particular market segment. But that is, you know, a segment of the market. And like, broadly speaking, you know, we have customers who have mobile apps, we have browser apps, we have... Um, like, I want to get to the future where I can look into my dev tools and I can like, you know, authenticate it and logged in, of course, that if I am like trying to debug my application and I'm having a failure on, uh, in my browser, I want to be able to click into dev tools and then jump straight into, uh, right. the line on GitHub that is giving me that problem for the backend right. service that generated the, like. The, the problem that, you know, 
went all the way to the front end. That's the future I want to get to. And I don't think that's possible, um, you know, just doing, you know, narrowly focused market segments. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, and, and I just, I think that what I like about companies um, that are established like a new relic and like a data dog and like these bigger, these companies that are covering, you know, this wider swath or these broader market segments. What I like about them getting into the serverless piece of it is, I think for a lot of people, having a good serverless observability tool is it's an absolute necessity. You can't not have one of those. And if you are trying to build on an application and you're all on containers, maybe you still have some EC2 instances running, maybe you still have some on-prem, but you want to get into serverless, if you have to go out and buy a different tool and try to integrate that into what you're doing, I mean, that just becomes a really hard problem and a really hard sell. And if if you've got these, these bigger, more established companies that can do all these different things and you start mixing all of those things together, I actually think the observ or the the uh, adoption of serverless becomes easier because now you have those standard tools in place that are just a natural extension of your your, your cloud infrastructure. I think that's one hundred percent true, and I think that was one of the biggest challenges we had at IO Pipe was like, you know, great, but you know, users didn't want two tools, and the fact that the serverless right. tool was separate, you know, made it very hard to migrate the users, right? Because they had to migrate them not just the applications and their, you know, the way that they built their applications, but those developers had to also learn a new tool uh, and use two tools. Right. It is it, significantly better now that we have you know, a unified platform. Totally agree, totally agree. Hi everyone, I wanted to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Amazon Web Services, and tell you about a new completely free learning path that'll teach you how to use objects in Amazon S3 to trigger automated workflows using AWS Lambda. James Bezik, the same author that brought you the awesome Innovator Island virtual workshop, is back again with this six episode learning series that shows you how to use the S3 and Lambda pattern through several example applications. You'll deploy applications into your own AWS account, explore extending them using your own use cases, and ultimately be ready to develop sophisticated distributed applications built around S3 events using custom code to integrate with other AWS services. And the whole thing takes less than an hour to complete. So if you want to level up your serverless skills, check out the link in the show notes to this episode or visit bit.ly slash S3 Lambda. All right, so speaking of hybrid applications, because I think that's what we're talking about. Some people, they're, they're maybe running their main workloads on containers. Uh, maybe they're using Kubernetes or something like that. And, and then they've got these peripheral things that they might be doing with, uh, with serverless. Maybe they're ETL, maybe they're DevOps tasks, whatever. Um, but clearly you do have a lot of hybrid apps and, 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 and that's great, that's fine. Do what you need for your workload. Um, but one of the things that I thought was interesting, sort of, you know, this is relatively new with Fargate and with Cloud Run, um, is this idea of trying to take containers and make them more serverless. So well, how do you feel about serverless containers? Oh gosh, uh, there's so many things here I cannot talk about. Uh <laughs> <laughs> well, do your best. Um, so I, I think that it's interesting. I think that Cloud Run in particular is pretty interesting. Um, I, I, I think that it's important to meet users where they are. And building out serverless container runtimes is a really fantastic way of meeting users where they are. That said, um, I think there are reasons why you know serverless 
Yeah. So artificial constraints, I think, are one of the most powerful tools that we have um, as builders of infrastructure products, right? Uh, I come from a history of building infrastructure products, things like uh, you know Docker and OpenStack. And one of the things I wanted to do with Docker, and I advocated strongly for, was actually fewer features. I wanted Docker containers to be able to do less. Um, mm-hmm. And that was because of a number of reasons. I wanted to have uh, more immutability for the services. I wanted to have more Im- immutability for the logs. Like One of the things that I found with Docker was that if you restarted a container, you stopped it and you restarted it, you would get a new set of logs. So if you did Docker logs, you, you didn't have any of the logs from the previous run. Mm-hmm. Like, why would we throw those away? <laughs> those should be immutable. And I was like, this should be a mutable record. Like, logs should never be erased. And uh, I lost that battle. Um, I lost the battle of saying that we should not be able to ping out of containers because the ping out of a container requires net raw. And if you have net raw, you can... Um, do things like spoof uh, the IP addresses of other containers on the same host. Um, so these are the kinds of things that you can do in Docker that I thought that we shouldn't be able to do in Docker. I thought that we would enable users by taking away features because the problem is that we've, in, you know, enabling users to ping also enables them to, you know, uh, you know, compromise uh, adjacent containers on that host, right? And those are things that we don't want to enable our users to do. Um, we don't want to enable users to lose their log files, right? Uh, mm-hmm. we, we want to enable them to you know, have immutable logs. Uh, and I think that serverless, uh, or Lambda at least, right? Because um, I don't think we should say it's a serverless thing. I think it's a Lambda thing. Lambda um, has done a really good job of having really tight constraints on the workloads. And allowing arbitrary containers, arbitrary Docker containers, for instance, or OCI images to run, would mean that your contain that your applications can do a lot of things that they really sh- probably shouldn't be doing ever. Mm-hmm. Like you should never have an application that can write to arbitrary, like if your application was to escalate to a root user, that root user should never be able to write to the Etsy password file or the Etsy shadow file. That should be impossible. Your root user should not be able to do those things. You should have an environment where you are contained in a way where you cannot escalate in those in that fashion. And I think that, um, you know, going, you know, enabling containers, right? It's, you know, arbitrary containers does take a step back from that. On the other hand, we do want to meet users where they are and enable them right. to build applications in a way that you know actually accelerates their development. Um, I'm thinking back to like the CGI days and users a lot. We would have so many users that, I mean, not just users, like tutorials and blog posts, so that even when you like web operations. So this is one of the things when I had a web operation in 2002, 2003, 2004. Um, I mean, it was really through the whole 2000s, but like that was like when for me, it was like those were when we had like users were shipping CGI applications and PGP applications or PHP applications. And then we started moving. We tried to force users to go into uh, virtual machines and containers um, in the mid 2000s because we wanted to stop having users doing bad things on our infrastructure. They kept doing bad things, but they did it inside of you know, their own sandboxes. Um, right, exactly. This is something else that we learned. 
right, was that enabling users to do things in a secure way did not actually get them to start doing things in a secure way. It just isolated <laughs> them from the other users. So they the didn't, of, like, yeah, right, from the rest of the system, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but like, use, you know, you would find blog posts where they would tell you to, you know, make your directories mode 777. Oh, yes, yes. Right? And that's something <laughs> that users should have never done. But they did it because a lot of providers didn't have the right security isolation. But when you did provide the right security isolation and you had your PHP application running as your own dedicated user in your own container in your own VM, which we did, users still said the their, their directory is the mode 777. It was completely not necessary. Uh, and, and I think that that's, I, I think it's the, the same struggle. You know, users, uh, you give them Docker containers and every single developer, almost every developer is going to do it wrong. Um, and right. forcing them to right. do it to best practices, you didn't have another choice. They're, they're, you know, don't give them a choice to do it wrong. <laughs> right. And I, and I totally, I totally agree with you on the artificial constraints thing. And that's one of the things I love so much about serverless where it was like, there was no state, right? So you had to just think about things differently. And there were circumstances where you're like, wow, it'd be really nice to have access to state, you know, to do this one specific thing. But it was a best practice or it was a good idea to use state to do this. But under normal circumstances, like let's say massively, um, you know, a horizontal, a horizontal scaling, using state was a terrible idea, right? Like, because you just wouldn't get the performance. Um, so then we get EFS integration with Lambda um, and that changes quite a bit. Now, I think there are a lot of really, really good use cases for that. Um, and Lambda would be perfect workloads. But back to your point, I think people can do some really bad things with this. Uh, gosh, uh, I mean, true. I think a lot of users can do bad things with it. I've actually been thinking about some really awesome slash awful things I can do with it. Um, I thought about like, you know, so I set up an EFS and now I have like, and I have my own VPN from my house into my AWS environment where I have an EFS and I can locally in my house you know, on my home computers, mount those NFS uh, folders, which is amazing. And then I can run Lambda jobs against the data that I basically threw onto my NAS. So like I can keep my photo libraries on EFS, like out of Aperture or out of um, mm -hmm. Lightroom, right? So like my Lightroom can now store on EFS and then I can have Lambda process my images that I've been like right. for my photos. That's a really powerful thing, but also you know, is that like a work? Is that a way that we should be working with our with our with our things? Uh, I, mm -hmm. I think there is value in the fact that we are enabling use cases and, and workloads. Um, another application I've been working on has been email, and I I did a whole t a talk on like how I kind of failed at building out an email system. And one of the things I did not talk about was how EFS would make this better because <laughs> <laughs> it, EFS wasn't. Uh, announced yet wasn't an um, option right yeah <laughs> yeah um but one of the things was uh you can have um uh ses right into s3 have s3 trigger a lambda to write those uh email messages into efs but then um so now like i'm using lambda to actually write into efs my applications that are reading from efs are actually container applications running on fargate and that's because um, an IMAP server cannot run behind API Gateway. It can't run mm -hmm. r really anywhere serverlessly. You need to, like, if you want to run an IMAP server, 
you need to run it basically in Fargate or EC2. Um, and so that was the model I picked. So now it's like I have, um, you know, an IMAP server, uh, Dovecot, running on Fargate, reading off EFS, and the, the files in EFS are written to it from SES. And the only way to do that is with Lambda. Um, right. My alternative would be to write, like, I guess, an, an SES consumer that would pull from it and, like, you know, do or, or put it in an SQS and then, you know, write an SQS consumer that runs on Fargate. And here I could just write the Lambda, uh, which is, you know, a lot easier, a lot more powerful, a um, lot less to maintain. And then I only have to have the Fargate for, you know, for the IMAP. And the other thing is the IMAP doesn't have to scale as much too, right? Because the IMAP only has to scale for the number of people who are reading, say, a, a mailbox. Mm-hmm. You know, writing the email messages from S- SES, I mean, like, that's the many-to-one problem, right? Um, the IMAP is, like, you know, a few-to-one. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, well, what I'm what I'm concerned about is that someone's going to be like, oh, well, now I have a, a file system that's shared, and I can just connect Lambda to it, so now I can just use Lambda as a web server, right, and just load files off of that because... I you just know someone's going to do that, right? I mean, we have already talked about in the I past like serverless. I will definitely do it. <laughs> <laughs> just just for fun. Um, but I think that that like you said meeting, you know, meeting consumers where they are. I mean, I wonder if EFS though, especially when you get down to things like uh, machine learning and some of these other things where you have to load really large notebooks or um, you know, you've got a lot of data that needs to be loaded in and streaming that from S3 is just one expensive and slow. Um, you know, do you think that maybe EFS might um, dissuade or or open up new possibilities where Docker containers might not be as as needed? Uh well, I, I think in the uh, you know in, in my IMAP example, right? That's an example where I would have had to build that application entirely on top of you know Docker or EC2 previously, mm-hmm. and now with EFS, I could build a hybrid application. That is partially built on top of Lambda. Yeah. Um, it doesn't get me all the way. Um, and I guess there's an argument. Well, you know, containers on Lambda wouldn't solve that problem for me either, though. Right? Unless right. they were able to give me arbitrary ports, which would be amazing. Uh, but until <laughs> AWS gives me, like, arbitrary TCP IP, um, I'm going to yeah. be stuck, you know, having to at least run the non-HTTP services <laughs> uh, on, on, on Fargate. Right. But, but it did, you know, ECS definitely did enable me to take that particular application and not run half of it on containers. <laughs> yeah, right, right. All right, well, so let's move on to um, talking about maybe the future of the cloud, because I know you did a lot of work on OpenStack. Um, we've got Kubernetes, right? Uh, you, do you see, and maybe we maybe we bring this back to open source, right? So you've got um, uh, you've got all these big open source orchestration systems and cloud, you know, cloud orchestration. Um, is is that what we think it's moving to? Do we think we're going to see you know the open stacks and the and the Kubernetes being just the dominant players in terms of how people building cloud applications? Oh gosh. Um... I don't know. I've become very skeptical of open source over the years. Um, okay. <laughs> like, 
I think there's a lot of traction for the, uh, you know, for, for the for the fully hosted services. I mean, Lambda, excuse me, Lambda is interesting because it's completely closed source. Um, I guess you can say Firecracker. I have hiccups. Um, Firecracker, <laughs> um, you know, is kind of a partial open sourcing of Lambda, but it's open sourcing of the pieces that are very much not serverless, right? It's open sourcing right, right. of something that looks a lot more like traditional architecture. Um, but we also have Kubernetes and like EKS, um, alas, uh, the Google version, uh, Google container service. These yeah. are, it's interesting because they are shipping open source solutions, but part of this is like now AWS is charging you 10 cents per, per hour, I think to run an EKS cluster. And like, I mean, I, I think it comes out to like $70 or something a month just to run an EKS cluster, to run no applications mm -hmm. on it. Like, I'm going to tell right. you as an individual developer, I am not going to do that. Um, like, it's not important to me as an individual. Now, of course, as a business, building business applications, it can very much make sense to pay $70 a month to manage your application. As an individual, I mean, I can go buy a Raspberry Pi and put it in my you know garage um, and I think that is kind of important because even though that may not be the market that like AWS is looking for, it does mean that you have fewer developers experimenting and learning with these technologies because yeah. they be because you know from a learner's perspective, they're more difficult to access. Um, and I do think that open source, um, in theory, provides a lot of opportunity for learning. But all of these solutions are way too complicated. I think Docker was a really great example of a successful open source project in that it was very easy for developers to use it and learn it. Um, Kubernetes is way too complicated for the majority of developers to pick up and run in like their house on a Raspberry Pi or on a small server or a small VM for them to experiment and play with. It's just, it's too much, it's too difficult, it's too expensive. Um, so, and honestly, I don't think that it's a fundamental problem with building orchestration solutions. I think it's a fundamental problem of these being corporate solutions. Like these are solutions yeah. that are being built by enterprises for enterprises. They're not being built for learners. They're not being built for developers who need to enter this industry or to get their next job. Um, in fact, if anything, they, they actually create more barriers than they create solutions in some ways. Yeah, and I wonder, do you think they were maybe like a victims of their own success, right? Like it gets popular and then you start getting a whole ecosystem around it and then they get more complex and more complicated. And then, you know, then you get things like EKS where they said, you know, where Amazon says, this is too tough for any normal person to manage. So we're just going to build a service that abstracts that away. Is that, is that something you, you think about? It, it is. Um, yeah. And I, I think that EKS can be strongly contrasted against ECS, right? Where, you know, you have a service that is fully managed for you. And if, for me to get started on, e, you know, ECS, um, I had to spin up um, an EC2 image, which honestly I have to say was a little harder than I thought. Um, you could theoretically use Fargate, although I've had a lot of trouble with Fargate. Um, I'll get like just air saying, like I'll set everything up in a way that it's supposed to work. And then it just says, oh, mm -hmm. no, 
this like Fargate can't actually run this workload. And it just just says no. It doesn't say why, it just says no. Uh, and I'm like, okay, well, I'm just going to spin up an EC2 image and run traditional ECS. Um, but even then, you know, it's what? An EC2 image and a Docker container? Um, it's not, here's my cluster. Here's my configuration mm-hmm. for that cluster. Here's, it, it, it's like EKS is, you have AWS managing a service and then there's still the service that you have to still kind of manage yourself in there as well. And it, it's significantly more complicated and more costly. Um, and I don't necessarily want to run, you know, a cluster at all. I, I want to have the e- ECS experience uh, for, for Kubernetes or maybe just no Kubernetes at all. Like, uh, you know, as somebody who doesn't necessarily need it, I just want to run my applications. That's what I want to do. And honest, and and I want to pay as little for them as possible. I want them to be as easy to set up and run, easy to shut down. Um, A lot of the reasons I like Lambda because I don't have to worry about it or think about any of it. And for the majority of my applications, that is fine. That said, I also have, you know, a programmable open source networking switch in my basement that <laughs> like I have built my own operating system for. <laughs> so, I, you know, I, I can go a little bit both ways with this, but the thing is, that's a choice. Like I wanted to build right. a, an operating system for my, for my networking switch and run that. Um, and I don't want to do that with, with Kubernetes. I just don't. <laughs> Right. Well, I mean, you also have, I mean, it, it's fine for your own personal stuff, but if you've got uh, enterprises that are relying on this stuff, then obviously it, it needs to be uh, fully tested and it needs to have lots of developers contributing to it, which is another thing I, I think is interesting, or I guess an interesting trend, um, is that, you know, companies, and forcing is, pro- forcing is probably the wrong word, but, you know, they're having some of their employees just work on open stuff um, or open source stuff, right? And I, and I like the idea of companies, you know, dedicating some time and resources to help keep some of these open source projects up and running. But just what are your thoughts on on companies that that have you know open source teams that are that are doing a lot of contributions? So, I mean, I've I've been on one of those teams. I have you know been an employee who was just working on open source things um, when I was at. Uh, when I was working on OpenStack, I mean, it was the majority of the work I was doing was in the open. I also did a lot of building of like chef recipes and, you know, integrating those components together and making them work. And I think this is one of the things uh, that you ki- that was kind of touched on a little bit in the question was the fact that I, maybe this is less true with Kubernetes, although maybe not completely untrue. It was definitely extremely true of OpenStack, which was that you had these loosely coupled components that as an operator, you had to figure out how to put them all together and make them work. And everything was tested, but nothing was really integrated. And you needed to have companies that integrate these things for you. That's why you have companies like Heptio and VMware and everything for Kubernetes as well. Um, So I think that was an issue. Um, From a perspective of open source developers, uh, though, my biggest issue is the culture. Every one of these open source projects or, you know, uh, you know, pro- projects, you know, however small or big that they are, because I think, you know, so things like Kubernetes, right, uh, are now multiple projects. You have things like Falco and, um, and so forth that are 
sub projects or adjacent projects or you know <laughs> however you want to define them. Um, <laughs> they are, you know, you have but you have a community here that operates a certain way. Uh, they have their own culture, and that culture is different potentially than the culture that you as a uh, a company founder or as HR or a manager or whoever, you know, of a company that is not necessarily the same culture that you want your co- company to have or your team to have that is in the open source, right? And, and mm-hmm. how do you kind of resolve the, like, th- that difference? Because one of the other things is that a lot of people hire from these open source communities. So if you are building a team that is going to work in open source and you want to have, um, you know, you want to make this a diverse team, for instance, uh, but it's not a diverse project. You know, how, you know, how, how does that work, right? Is the project and the other people in that project, you know, going to discriminate against you either, you know, implicitly, explicitly, um, like it may not be intentional, right? Um, you know, there are implicit biases that exist. Um, Mm -hmm. and I think it becomes very difficult because, when you have your own like closed source application and you're building things for your own self and your own teams, you have control over what you're building, how you're building the, and the, const- the construction of your team, et cetera. And I think that you lose a lot of that when you're working in an open community, because if you're only working on open source, it's almost like while you're employed by one company, your coworkers are almost in a sense, a set of people that are not hired by your company that may not right. actually hold the same values that you or your company holds. And I don't have a solution for this, but it's something I think about a lot. Um, and right. it's one of the reasons I no longer really contribute much to open source. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, and, and that is where the problem is that you get brilliant developers and engineers like yourself. And then, um, you know, because of, uh, the culture that just exists in tech, which is in many cases pretty bad, um, you know, that if, if it's discriminatory or um, it, it, it just, like you said, like maybe they, they don't accept that PR request because, oh, it's from you or whatever it is. And you don't know who those maintainers are sometimes or, or, or how they feel. And, and then there's no accountability, right? That's the other thing that um, I think is, uh, is, is a challenge in open source. But, um, but that's too bad. I wish you would contribute more rather than just writing your own um, you know, operating system for your network switches. But, um, <laughs> but anyways, uh, so I have one more question to ask you just about this idea of you know, open source versus proprietary systems. So I love Lambda, right? I think Lambda is a great product. It's got so many awesome features. Yes, it doesn't do everything perfectly. Yes, there are constraints that some good, some bad. Um, but then you've got, you know, Knative or, you know, open, or some, what's the other one there? Open Fast and some of these other mm-hmm. things. Uh, you know, what do you think about that? I mean, I, I, I do love open source, projects and I, I do love what you can do with that open source stuff um, but on the other side of the coin I mean there's you know having uh, somebody making a profit off of it and constantly monitoring it and improving it and listening to customer feedback um, I think that's important too so where do you stand on on those types of products yeah it's um, I, I this is again the, the challenge of open source versus you know corporate engagement uh, <laughs> You know, going back to reasons why I'm like hesitant on open source, but it's just 
um, it is important, I think, to understand where your users are coming from and what your users need. And I think that, you know, a lot of those corporate interests are really good at, you know, having product-driven decisions. Um, I don't think it's necess- that it's necessarily a requirement. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, you have a lot of, you know, things that, like, some of the more successful open projects that do not have corporate sponsorship do also tend to be things that are more straightforward, more, you know, like the use case is really well known. Like I think that Mm -hmm. some of the uh, video game emulators, for example, are very great projects that maybe don't have as much corporate sponsorship as other projects in open source, but also it's really obvious what you need to do, right? You need to make the thing work technically to, you know, a defined standard, whether that standard is written down or it's a black box, uh, you know, you're, you're replicating it. Um, what was interesting for me with, um, you know, Knative and uh, OpenWist and some of these others was that they didn't necessarily actually go to Lambda and look at, like, how are we going to kind of emulate this service? Um, they kind of went and did it their own way with their own product orgs, and they didn't necessarily learn the lessons um, that the other products had learned or those other teams had learned. Um, so yeah, I, I'm I'm a little bit um, I don't know. I, I guess I'm a, I'm a little conflicted on this because I, I don't necessarily see like corporate engagement always actually delivering you know the right product because I'm I'm not actually sure that you know K Native is the right product. I don't think it's picked up the way that a lot of people you know hoped it would pick up. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I just wonder too about you know, whether there's that question of lock-in. I, I feel like that lock-in question is is just, so many people still ask it or, or still, you know, I, I think weigh that, you know, um, you know, weigh that as part of their decision-making process. But I, I just think of something like, you know, something as simple as compute as Lambda. And yes, it's got all these other great features, things that can connect to all the eventing that's built in. Um, then you look at something like Knative or, or OpenFast or, um, you know, uh, OpenWhisk or any of these things that are, uh, you know, open source implementations of these. And they have their sets of limits and their features and other things that they do as well. Um, I mean, do you think lock-in, and I, I even hate to ask this question, but I mean, is lock-in a factor there or is it one of those things where moving a compute service is probably not as challenging as trying to, you know, design for the lowest common denominator? I, I think that for open source, lock-in has a few factors. One is like, what is the velocity of that project and its uptake? Because a lot of people don't, you know, a lot of companies do not want to be the first ones to adopt something like Knative. Um, and they don't want to be locked into it if it turns out that the project ultimately fails, right? Because now they are locked into something that is abandoned. They, you know, and nobody wants to be locked into something that's right. abandoned. But, you know, increasingly, you know, kind of going back to, you know, the culture thing a little bit, um, Honestly, I don't think most people think about this, but it's something I personally think about a lot is also locking yourself into that culture. Because if I, let's say, use Linux, I am locking myself into the Linux kernel community to a certain degree. And if that's not a culture that I want to be associated with or if I don't feel comfortable with that culture, I'm not locked into an operating system that I don't feel that I can, you know, I can contribute to that you know, is Linux open source if it's not accessible to me as a developer? If I do not right. feel that I 
you know, can contribute to that project successfully for various factors, um, is it actually open source? And um, is my ability to engage with that project and work with it, um, you know, really any better? Or is it actually worse than working with something like macOS where I might, um, you know, or, or maybe in, or even Windows where, you know, I can mm -hmm. maybe, you know, you know, build a business relationship with Microsoft or Apple, you know, that is non-discriminatory. Um, you know, th these are really um, interesting questions that I've been asking myself recently. Uh, and, you know, I, I think it relates a lot to the lock-in because as soon as I choose a technology, I'm choosing the people that build it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a I think that's a great point. I remember uh, seeing not that long ago um, someone who posted on Twitter that they were, and I, I think it was some SQL group or something like that, um, where knowingly refused to address them uh, by their proper pronoun, even though they knew what it was and knew that that's what that person preferred, um, and just ignore that fact. And I think it's little things like that that push people away, you know. And and again, it's it's hurtful, it's hateful, it's disgusting, and and those things th that bothers me too. So I mean. Keep fighting the good fight for that. You know, I'll do whatever I can, um, you know, to to be as open and welcoming to to these communities as possible. It's just one of the things I like about the serverless community. I feel like it um, has been very, very open um, and welcoming, and um, and it's just a you know hopefully a safe space to be. So hopefully we can make more of these tech communities those things. Um, so anyways, so uh, Erica, thanks again for joining me and giving me all of this insight uh, into observability as well as into this open source stuff. There's a lot of things that we need to be thinking about in 2020 that um, I think two pe you know, people have ignored for too long. So um, I, I appreciate your voice on this. Uh, so if people want to get a hold of you or find out more about what you're doing at New Relic, how do they do that? Uh, well, uh, I have a Twitter. Uh, it's not only technology, though. Um, and, um, I guess you could email me if you want to, uh, you know, personal is Erica at windish.us or, uh, you know, professionally I have, uh, ewindish at newrelic.com. If you want to reach out directly, uh, find me on Twitter. Um, yeah, I guess those are the, the main places. <laughs> all right. And then newrelic.com, just if you want to check out all the stuff they're doing with serverless there, right? Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, I will put all that into the show notes. Thanks again, Erica. Appreciate you being here. Great. Thank you. And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Erica Windish for being my guest this week and to our sponsor, Amazon Web Services. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 58. For more serverless chats, subscribe, check us out on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And if you'd like to submit questions to our guests, suggest episode topics, and win some free swag, sign up to be a Serverless Chats Insider at serverlesschats.com slash insiders. Connect with me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.